4: The Armstrong
0: and Getty Show.
3: This is so interesting to me. Uh, I've quoted various parts of this paper uh, through the last couple of weeks, but um, the more I dig into it, the more interesting it becomes. You're surely aware that academia is overwhelmingly left. Well, in a paper that came out not too long ago, uh, a scientist by the name of Mitchell Langbert and colleagues analyzed voter registration data uh, on approximately 4,000 U.S. academics. That's a pretty good sampling, 4,000. As the table below indicates, the ratio of Democrats to Republicans was only 9 to 1 among men. That is uh, only in quotes. That is a bit of irony and a bit of sarcasm. Among men, it is 9 to 1 in academia, Democrat to Republican. Among women, it was just short of 25 to 1. An alternate way to summarize it is that while 10% of male academics are Republicans, fewer than 4% of female academics are. That is shocking. Shocking. Thanks to that and another study that they cite, we also have detailed surveys from two of the most left-leaning disciplines, sociology and anthropology. Anthropology. Uh,
5: Sociology, obs, but anthropology.
3: Yeah, um, and then they go into the attitudes among uh, male and female sociologists uh, from a sample of 500 who agreed and disagreed with various items. Um, Compared to men, women were much more likely to say sociology should be both a scientific and moral enterprise and sociology should analyze and transcend oppression. They were less likely to say more political conservatives would benefit benefit our discipline and that advocacy and research should be separate for objectivity. You know, that last one troubles me the most. Advocacy and research clearly should be separate for objectivity. Otherwise, what's your act? What's your advocacy based on? Flawed data? Why? Well, because if I can flaw the data in my favor, it gives me an even stronger case. They would say if they were going to be honest about it. Um, so that's that's the, the ratios of of liberals to conservatives is shocking and insane. But how liberal? And they dig into the survey, the actual questions asked. Um, uh, they and they go into sociology should be both scientific and moral, as we've said. Uh, blah blah blah. I support Marx's dictum to change the world. Women agreed, seventy-four to eight. To
5: openly, to, 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 I, I support Marx's dictum to change the world. Change the world. Okay.
3: Yeah. It's 5620 men, but it's 74 to 8 women. Opponents of gay marriage should not be sociologists. Let's see. Those those numbers are kind of weird. Let's see. Where's the... Pursuing social justice is not incompatible with accurate research. 76% of the women agreed with that. And that's fairly uncontroversial, but... Uh, the part that uh, was really troubling was that compared to men, women were substantially more likely to say, science is just one way of knowing, and that postmodern theories have made important contributions. What does and that they were mean? Much, that critical theory, queer theory, radical, you know, this, that, and the other theory are important to our field. Um. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, finally, there's evidence uh, supplied by Eric Kaufman in his mammoth report. He re- compiled data from several different surveys of graduate students and ap- academics. He found that women were more likely to support dismissal campaigns, kicking out people who disagreed, more likely to discriminate against conservatives and more likely to support diversity quotas for reading lifts, lists. Overall, they had significantly more left wing views and troublingly. Uh, where is that? Um. Oh, where is it? I'm sorry. I misplaced it. Uh, Women were... Oh, compared to men, women were less pro-free speech and more pro-censorship. Within academia itself, they are more left-wing, more inclined toward activism, and less inclined toward dispassionate inquiry. In fact, where are the... uh, Oh, the advocacy for uh, the suppression of free speech. I don't see those numbers, but again, women were distinctly more likely to advocate that sort of position. So, we have academia that is wildly left, and the women of academia are the hardest core radicals, ideological radicals in America today. And I really feel for you people who are sending your kids off to school at enormous expense to be exposed to these people. If, if you If your kid has a female teacher professor, the chances are 25 to 1, they are going to be a progressive. And the fact that they're, I mean, if any field was 25 to 1, that's crazy. The field of teaching your children about the world, that is completely unacceptable.
5: So I was listening to an interesting podcast yesterday. It was with a British pundit. He's a professor. He was also in parliament for a while. And he was talking about how troubling it is! How United States identity politics is catching on in Great Britain. And he said, "Oh yeah, mm-hmm. uh, you you talk to uh, school kids. They're more likely to know who Rosa Parks was and Martin Luther King than a lot of great British, you know, figures that throughout history have been you know the sort of person you you learn about as a, as a kid in England um, because." The whole identity politics thing has traveled there and was discussing how it it only catches on, really, if you if you're the kind of kid that goes off to college and doesn't work. Because you almost have to be able to capture a kid, isolate them from the world, and hang on to them for four years to get them to buy this stuff. Because if you were working... Mm-hmm. You'd run into reality every single day when you went to work. You'd realize nobody's using... Because if you're in college and you don't have a job or have never had a job, you don't realize nobody's using pronouns. Nobody's right. doing that in the workplace. It's non-existent, right? except for rare exceptions. Whereas if you had a job and stuff like that, you'd be learning about that at school, and you'd go to, to your job and realize, I don't know what they're talking about at school, but ain't nobody even discussing this stuff at Walmart or the restaurant or wherever else I'm working.
3: So you have this. Uh, actually, I came across this article in the journal uh, a couple of weeks ago. I held on to it. Uh, American wokeness invades Britain schools. It's exactly what you're talking about, and and it's a, uh, a profile of this extremely controversial educator in Britain who has opened up the equivalent of a charter school. Um, and and they call her Britain's strictest headmistress, and and her arguments. Which I'm looking at the clock. Maybe we'll save that for next segment, but. The fact that she's being portrayed as radical, saying what she's saying, gives you an idea of how far left education has gone. But I promise you the James Lindsay thing. He did a brilliant speech. He's uh, a guy who authored Cynical Theories with Helen Pluck-Rose, if you know this topic. If you're into this topic, you know who James Lindsay is, but... Um, He gave the speech in Europe where he was talking about this is neo-Marxism. The Marxists failed in making it about the working class versus the bourgeoisie. Because the working class all over the world said, hey, I'm working hard. I'm getting ahead. I've got a good life. I like this. I'm up for plant manager next month. So that failed. Marxism did not catch on in the Western world. And so the Marxists kind of got back together in the middle twenty-first or 20th century and said, okay, how do we pit people against each other? And they decided in the German, uh, you know, uh, philosophical and intellectual salons that we've got to go with the racial minorities, the sexual minorities, women, if we can fire them up. The way we overthrow the current world order and bring on Marxism is that energy, not class energy, but race energy. And so Lindsay was talking about, look, it's super hot in the U.S. and it, uh, they use these terms and they're using these strategies. It's a virus. It will adapt itself to Britain. Do not think you're immune to this. It, they will go hard at the uh, colonizing. What's that? Decolonizing. Obviously in Britain that's going to be their strategy. They're going to call Everything you do, every vestige of British tradition, culture, and society, they're going to call it part of the colonizing evil. And, and and he explained, as he often does, critical race theory, you call what you want to control racist until you control it. till everybody's so afraid of you, you take control of it. In Britain, they're going to call everything colonialist until people give them control of it. Then they get control of it, obviously. That's the strategy. Hmm. Huh. And it is invading Britain. Uh, Once you understand how it works, it's like, I see what you're doing. And it's easy to recognize. But, man, this is the truth just putting on its shoes while the lie has made it into every American classroom. Which is why I'm so fired up about this. This is the great ideological battle of our lifetimes. And this woman who's very controversial, I mean, she uh, when she opened her school, there were union picketers outside, uh, activists like critical theory people saying this woman's a racist and cruel. and, And here's what she believes. She places the emphasis on discipline. She said children need lots of discipline, and when I see say discipline, I don't mean they need to be able to sit in a chair or be punished. They need to be able to work hard, both in the classroom and outside, to engage with learning and really want to listen to the teacher, to be interested in the subject matter, to be able to strategize for their lives and have goals. They need to understand how their behavior now will affect their futures and the kinds of people that they will be. And she believes that a discipline of mind, of attitude, ignoring this is one of the ways we let our children down. All children. But it especially hurts the disadvantage. People don't like it when I talk about this. Personal responsibility and a sense of duty toward others. So... Um, she believes that the idea that a child has agency and can choose between right and wrong is quite contentious. The view is that and its gaining ground in schools, thanks a lot, America, is that children, quote, cannot help the way they behave because they are poor or they are black or their father isn't in the home. But apart from, quote, some very exceptional situations, she says, the vast majority of children can engage with lessons and behave themselves quote if we allow them not to because of some idea that they're not able to do it that they don't have the agency to decide to do so or that something is preventing them from exercising that agency then i think we're letting them down in other words she's like every success story you've ever seen on 60 minutes where some tough talking demanding principal takes over a harlem school Usually a black man or woman demands a lot from the kids, expects a lot from the kids, and the kids delight in reaching their expectations. How many times do we have to see this right. played out before the radical leftists who say, no, the opposite? You're, you're a racist. This is white guilt. You, you can't demand anything of kids. Most my- people, God, they're child abusers.
5: Yeah, that reminds me. I didn't get to this story yet. It was in my headlines this morning when I woke up. It's a Washington Post story, I think. A school district ended academic tracking, in quotes. It's a leader in the quest for racial equity and a cautionary tale. And I have a feeling I know what the story is. That when they stopped tracking academic achievement, they did end up with equity. Was well, everybody failing?
3: Yes. Sure. Shared misery, as uh, Churchill put it. Yeah. So if yeah, you. The wa- whole, we're eliminating grades. We're eliminating homework, achievement tests in the name of equity. That's serving the kids? Wow.
0: I'm strong and nifty. The reality is, is. This is fabulous.
3: I thank you. <gasps> that's enough
0: of that. This is all crazy.
3: This is the way it is. Yep. But damn it. We weren't allowed to ask about the big guys. This is the
0: United States of America, for God's sake. Let's not play games with this.
3: Really interesting uh, story out, speaking of dividing ourselves into progressive tania and the conservative states of America. Um, uh, we'll have a hell of a lot better football team and army, apparently. Uh, there has been a trend in recent years that's just growing and growing. Uh, girls, teenage girls, young women are swerving leftward politically, and boys are going in the opposite direction.
5: And I mentioned in- that my boys have strongly culturally conservative views that I swear to god they did not get from me on topics where I've never discussed them at all it just kind of got to them through the os- well I think it came through the
3: osmosis of this doesn't make sense
5: a lot of the oh, stuff they're oh, saying I would agree
3: I would agree human beings are not without instincts just because we got a big old frontal lobe doesn't mean we're not able to recognize danger for instance or or something that will make us sick something that doesn't compute Anyway, uh, there are roughly twice as many boys as uh, who identify as conservative or very conservative as identify as liberal or very liberal right now. The figures represent a striking shift in the political views of boys as recently as late 2000. Liberal boys occasionally outnumbered conservatives. It was often pretty even uh, back in the Carter era. Both boys and girls leaned liberal. Uh, nowadays, it is girls who are drifting to the left. The share of 12th grade girls who identified as liberal rose from 19% to 30% between 2012 and 2022. Wow. From 19 to 30. Only 12% of girls identified as conservative in last year's survey administered by the University of, of Michigan. Wow, Young women trending liberal age 18 to 29 as well. This is all
5: feeding numbers that are going that direction. So they're going to be the girls are going to be more likely to go to college, which is heavily dominated by women already, because the boys are going to think, I don't want to go hang around that craziness. um, And that's that's going to widen. Wow.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Young women are almost twice as likely as young men to claim the liberal tag, a widening gender gap in political beliefs. Uh, ba. the leftward drift of young women alone has sufficed to move the needle on young adults as a whole. Uh, let's see, Jean Twenge, I can never remember how to say her name. She's a professor of psychology at San Diego State University. She's brilliant, really insightful and not a nut job academic. Um. To spotlight the growing gender gap, she couched the numbers in a chart that split boys and girls along ideological lines, omitting moderates and the undecided. Among liberals, the future is female, she wrote. Among conservatives, the future is male. And then skipping ahead, well, that's uh, somebody not said,
5: good. That's not good for society either. God dang it! There's so many. There's so many arrows pointing bad directions.
3: I know it. This marriage cannot be saved. Uh, as one recent political article put it, Democrats have a masculinity problem. Uh, I believe that. Oh, this is uh, Delano Squires, who a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. I believe that traditional notions of masculinity are much more accepted within conservatism, and feminist values are clearly one of the driving forces of liberalism. And it, uh, you know, feminist is such a broad term; it hardly is useful right. these days. But
5: so, uh, not that much coupling going going on anyway. But if it is, or the girls going to get to say what they want, and the boys will keep their mouths
3: shut because they're hoping for a little something-something better to keep your mouth shut? Apparently not. Now they'll play video games and, and, and watch porn and let the girls yap back and forth to their woke professors. Wow. It's uh, Armstrong and Getty. What
4: in God's name? It's 100
0: on the crazy meter.
4: Flat well, Man, that makes my soul
0: bleed. That's insane. It's a little too much ducky talk. Unacceptable! The reality is, is... Things are getting weird.
3: They're getting weird fast. Uh,
0: okay. This is the Armstrong and Getty show.
5: is nearly as deadly as smoking up to 15 cigarettes per day. So I read this article over the weekend and kind of had it highlighted and was planning to get to it, but I've noticed it's gotten a lot of attention a lot of different places. The current Surgeon General, which I couldn't have told you, is Vivek Murthy, uh, wrote an op-ed piece over the weekend for the New York Times, a guest essay it's called, with the headline, We Have Become a Lonely Nation, It's Time to Fix That. He actually opens... Uh, when he was a doctor years ago dealing with somebody who had won the lottery and was said that it was one of the worst things that had ever happened to me, said this person who won the lottery. Wealthy but alone, this one vi- once vivacious social man no longer knew his neighbors and had lost touch with his former co-workers. He soon developed high blood pressure and diabetes. He was miserable and physically sick as he had changed his lifestyle in such a way that he had lost all his uh, uh, you know,
3: social connections. Mm-hmm. Which is not surprising. Well, and if you're suddenly super rich like that, everybody who comes at you, you question, all right, are we actually friends? Do you actually like me? Do you want something from me? Are you trying to work me? You know, it makes you suspicious and and weird to get you. You get weird. And this is like fame in a way.
5: This is. Yeah, exactly. Well, that that fits in this with this of Vivek Murthy. This is his second time around as surgeon general. He was under Obama, I guess, for a brief period and he talked about um when he was surgeon general before he'd gotten disconnected from all his colleagues and everybody he had worked you know for years with and so many hours with and everything like that he had been so busy that he had neglected his friendships um convincing himself he needed to focus on work and then he started to get physically sick as he was not connected to all the things he had been connected to his whole life um and that's what led him to write this piece in the, uh, in the New York Times. As you just heard, one out of every two Americans is experiencing measurable levels of loneliness. They get into the methodology behind that. But this includes introverts and extroverts, rich and poor, younger and older. Really doesn't matter who you are. About half wow. of us are experiencing some
3: sort of loneliness. Jack, we're more connected than ever in the new connected world.
5: Excellent point with, uh, yeah, that is excellent. We've talked about this before. I mean, I I text with friends more than I ever had communication with them pre-cell phones, but I talk to them less, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I think most of us do that. And texting is not the same as talking. And often see them never. Right, yeah. And you don't have that strong pull to set aside the weekend or the afternoon or whatever it would take to actually get together with somebody when you're texting on a regular basis, that's that whole weird, it, uh, it, it, it satisfies you just enough in the way that I think for a lot of m- young males, porn satisfies the sexual urge just enough to not make the effort to get the real thing. Um, texting with your friends satisfies that urge to get together with them just enough that you don't set aside a Saturday where you get together. All these things, they just, they barely get us by,
3: but it ain't working. If you keep eating that candy, it's going to spoil your supper. Your mom was right. Right. Yeah, so you're not starving anymore, but he ain't healthy either. You know, with all the... Public service announcements, we hear some are useful, I suppose, so, you know, about uh, drunk driving and such and some utterly idiotic and phony, like when teachers unions say bullying is wrong in schools, even as they advocate for policies that cause more bullying. Um, why do we not hear, since this is like universally recognized at this point, why don't we hear public service announcements saying, get together with your friends in person. Put down your phones. It will make you a much happier person.
5: Well, I think we are going to start hearing that, and I suggest you spend your public service announcement dollars on radio. But the Surgeon General writes, this week, for the first time, I will be proposing a national framework to rebuild social connection and community in America, which might include the very announcements you were just talking about him. loneliness is more than just a bad feeling he writes when people are socially disconnected the risk of anxiety and depression increases so does their risk of heart disease by 29 percent, of dementia wow. by 50 percent
3: oh. man if that's true that's unbelievable and but there's part of me that thinks, all right, the federal government's going to try to get us to see our friends more often. I mean, if you were to tell James Madison that, he'd, 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 well, he'd hey, completely Hey, that's not the funny. role
4: of the federal
5: government.
3: You know, there's no proof that just because he was a diminutive fellow, he talked like a munchkin, Jack. I thank you to drop that. I'm the father of the Constitution, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at the same time, since we have moved wholesale into socialized medicine already... Uh, you know, as Craig, the healthcare guru has pointed out in certain states, 70% plus of all medical costs are borne by taxpayers. Anyway, since we're already there, I don't particularly want to pay for your diabetes, dementia, and heart attack. So go uh, down to the diner and hang out with your buds. So loneliness raises the risk of heart disease by a th- almost
5: a third, dementia by half and stroke by a third. That's incredible. The increased risk of premature death associated with social disconnection is comparable to smoking daily and maybe even greater than the risk associated with obesity. Loneliness and isolation hurt whole communities. Social disconnection is associated with reduced productivity in the workplace, worse performance in school, diminished civic engagement. When we are less invested in one another, we are more susceptible to polarization in politics, less able to pull together to face the challenges we cannot solve alone, et cetera, et cetera. What this might be the underlying thing that's causing all these other things we've
3: been talking about. It absolutely could be. Yeah. Vivek Murthy was a complete phony on a lot of COVID things, but I think he's at least mostly right on this. I just, you know, how this is going to manifest itself, how much money is going to be spent on what. You know, my, the cynical part of me is back to, okay, the federal government's going to br- bring us all together.
5: <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm not optimistic. Um, but, uh, he says, first we must strengthen our social infrastructure. He gets into whole school based programs that teach children about building healthy relationships. I have zero confidence that that oh, will do anything, boy. but it will cost oh, many billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars, perhaps nationwide. I don't have any bu- workplace. Does I, so in the workplace, we're going to have to all go watch a video about how we need to get together more often. That will do nothing either. But the second part, we have to renegotiate our relationship with technology, creating space in our lives without our devices so we can be more present with one another. It also means choosing not to take part in online dialogues that amplify judgment and hate
3: instead of understanding. I'm not, I'm not super optimistic about that. So let's stamp that. out the disinformation. The federal government will take care of it for you. Right. Right diagnosis, wrong doctor.
5: Um, spending 15 minutes each day to reach out people we care about. Introducing ourselves to our neighbors. Checking on coworkers who may be having a hard time. Sitting down with people with different views to get to know, understand them. I ain't
3: doing that. And peering <laughs> into people's windows to better understand how they live their lives following people reading, home reading their mail <laughs> following people home to see where they live <laughs> oh, <geez>. boy <laughs> correcting their children in public to show that you care about them
5: <laughs> hiding under their beds um that's pretty interesting i i don't i don't i'm i'm not buying into any of the um, uh cures the fixes i am buying into the problem though wholeheartedly
3: yeah i stand by my s- statement accurate diagnosis i want a different doctor treating me there are things around the edges i guess conceivably the government might do but not much i mean when you got into the the, the glorious plans yeah. oh, man did that milk curdle in a, in a hurry. oh
5: oh oh we're gonna teach in schools the importance of being connected all right Another thing to put in schools that's not reading, writing, arithmetic.
3: Great. Yeah, and again, uh, uh, this will cost billions of dollars uh, uh, for the teachers' unions to get up to speed to uh, teach our children to be connected. Oh, and your idea of we've got to get work, you got to go watch a video on being connected with your coworkers. That reminds me. Um, there's this great story. We'll get to a little later on this hour. Um, the Portland police department, made all of the officers watch these videos about dealing with the LGBTQ, ABC, plus two minus times three community, and uh, then asked the officers for anonymous uh, reviews of the training program. It was hilarious, although not to the people who foist these training programs on people. So that's caused a bit of fallout. <sighs>
5: I've said several times today, we need to work on not being the most depressing radio show in America. So uh, I hesitate to say this, but um, as, uh, as as we as we have regularly talked about, this whole technology, internet, smartphone thing may be the doom of freaking mankind. We may not be able to survive this, at least in a way that we would recognize. It's well, possible the next generation comes to the company, because it's all so new.
3: Well, Mike as Mike. long as you've placed us on the escalator of doom, let's go all the way up to the the third floor. A more polarized, angry, ununited United States is uh, much more likely to be the target of aggressive moves by foreign actors that spiral out of control, nuclear holocaust, <laughs> and we have. A planet of the apes or beavers or or what is uh, Jonah Goldberg always saying? Let's give the bees a chance. (laughs) Exactly.
5: Uh, So you're saying the fact that I don't call my friends is going to lead to nuclear holocaust. Well, that seems like a lot of pressure. Um, uh, Maybe it's kids between my kids and your kids that are the first generation to have this their whole lives. By I don't I don't see my kids deciding they uh, this is not good this is not working I uh I I've heard about a time when people didn't stare at their screens all day long and that sounds better I think we'll stop I don't believe that's going to happen I'm I believe the opposite as I keep saying those of us who grew up without this stuff are going to be dead soon and there'll be nobody to say it didn't used to be like this people used to sit at dinner and look at each other and talk. People used to walk down the street together and talk and look around. It didn't used to be. All of us who remember that will be gone soon. There won't be anybody to even point it out.
3: Well, and that generation, those generations becoming more like old school us will be as foreign to them as me becoming Amish. It'll seem like a gigantic and radical lifestyle change. Right.
5: Wow. The the fact that it increases your chance of dementia by 50 percent stroke and heart disease by nearly a third is amazing.
3: Is it one of those things that is so stark and undeniable it will seep into culture without the aid of Uncle Sam and his billions of tax dollars? Could it be that more and more people just become more and more aware of it because it's so obvious?
5: It'll be treated like smoking, like everybody thought smoking was healthy and fun and cool and whatever. And then it just became a no, you can't do that. It's the worst thing you can do. Yeah.
3: Drunk <laughs> driving, trans fats, whatever.
5: Well, I don't know. It's, it's a very simple, specific thing to not smoke. It's not a simple, specific thing to be less lonely? There's a whole bunch of areas involved in that.
3: Well, and if you've been disconnected for a long time, it makes it harder to be good at being connected. Sure.
0: Armstrong and Getty. The reality is, is this is fabulous.
3: I thank you. <gasps> That's enough of that.
0: This is all crazy.
3: This is the way it is. Yep. But damn it. We weren't allowed to ask about the big guys. This is the United States of America, for God's sake. Let's not play games with this. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Hello. So, speaking of ways to make a living, this headline caught my eye. Return to office enters the desperation phase. According to the New York Times, the next stage of getting workers back at their desks uh, away from remote work uh, includes incentives like $10 to the charity of their choice. $10. And consequences like poor performance evaluations if they don't make the trek in. Well, And they give a bunch of examples. Yeah. Go ahead.
5: That, that's... Consequential. You know, getting a poor evaluation that might cost you your job is you know, a pretty big stick. Not much of a carrot to offer ten bucks to the charity of your choice, which by the way is seven dollars in twenty nineteen money.
3: Uh, let's see. Oh, okay. So they did a poor job of explaining that. It's actually uh, for a ten-day period. It will give ten dollars per day on behalf of any employee who comes into the office. Okay, so one hundred U.S. dollars, Jack.
5: How much are you going to change your life for your your company donated a hundred bucks to a charity for you?
3: So they uh, very little. So they start. How about I? I just donate the hundred dollars and I just don't come into the office because I, cons- I hate it.
5: And I continue to work in my underwear from home.
3: Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so they give the example of this chief executive of Seattle-based AI sales company. He has to repeat himself over and over again. Uh, the engineers remind him of their commutes. The working parents remind him of school pickup times. And he replies over and over again, being near each other makes us work better. We get better ideas. We can interrupt each other in person like we can't on a Zoom call. The ideas come much more quickly, blah, blah, blah. But for tens of millions of office workers it's been 3 years of scatter- scattershot plans for returning to in-person work, summoning people in, not really meaning it. Pretty much uh, everybody pretty much working wherever they pleased. Now for the umpteenth time businesses are ready to get serious. Yeah. Wave of companies called workers back this spring and summer. Disney said 4 days a week. Amazon swung with 3, prompting a walkout from its corporate workers. Meta and Lyft are saying now September we're all coming back. Others have devised other tactics, Google, which has asked most workers to be in the office three days a week, announced that performance reviews could take into account lengthy unexplained absences from the office. So originally, the story was people are actually
5: more productive from home, and this is just hastened something that was going to happen anyway, is now the story. We got to try the experiment. It doesn't work and it'll never happen.
3: Huh. That's an interesting question. I think a hybrid thing is developing as, as the best way to go forward. It's like, here, here's a metaphor for you. You turn your kids loose in the mall and you tell them you each know what you want. Go find the best deal on the best product. And for the first hour, it goes great. Then four hours later, when you haven't seen them and God knows what they're up to, mm-hmm. and now they're buying stuff they don't need with your credit card, and it's just, y- y- you need to check in. You know, and, and it's so funny. It's so typical of media wanting to leap to some giant conclusion about some societal change. You know, the, the answer to all that stuff, is uh, it's into more productivity, blah, blah. The answer to all this stuff is going to be, let's see, let's see how it evolves. Mm-hmm. Let's see what happens. Um, the 9 to 5 workday is dead, wrote Salesforce in a 2021 memo. An immersive workspace is no longer limited to a desk in our towers, blah, blah, blah. Well, it was very much alive on a recent Monday in Salesforce Tower in New York as a hum of activity filled the 41-story building. Uh Workforce is really, immer- I'm sorry, Salesforce has really uh, embraced. You got to come back to the office.
5: Interesting. And they know better than I do what's most productive. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Scattered throughout the office, Jack, you ought to work for Salesforce because I know how much you love this sort of thing. Scattered throughout the office were the company's animal mascots. Brandy the fox represents marketing. Astro the astronaut sat behind a piano in the 41st floor lounge. Cody the bear stood guard near the developers. So each department has an animal mascot. Isn't that great?
5: They have an actual bear? (laughs) I'm not sure that that might motivate me.
3: <laughs> motivation to run? <laughs> no, I believe it is bestuffed. Okay. Oh, so anyway, I just I have that I, paper I, in by Thursday at three, or we're releasing a bear. DocuSign, which has sixty five hundred employees spread across the globe, became a poster child for the lurching back and forth over return to office planning, and they go into their uh, uh ups and downs and. The employee is just saying, "Uh, uh." Armstrong and Getty. Bring some, uh, bring some coke, Yup. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: absolutely. This is a crisis. hundred on the crazy meter. This is a mess.
3: and everyone knows
2: it. <laughs>
0: let me say, let me say one thing. Hey, lots of luck in your senior year.
3: This is
2: the Armstrong and Getty Show. More than a movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia.
1: He has the smarts.